0: and find Haggai chapter 1 with me at the end of your Old Testament, the book of Haggai. It's good to be back among you. There's sort of a, a slight nagging thought I always have in the back of my mind after I'm off from preaching for a week or two, that when I stand back up here I won't know what I'm doing at all and we'll just make a total mess, so we'll find out together if that happens. I do want to invite you uh, tonight at 5, I'm going to be preaching again, and I want to talk about a great chapter of unity in the Bible, a great chapter about unity, which ironically and sadly has been a great cause of disunity, as people have argued about what it means and how it applies. A great chapter about how to get along when we disagree, which for some reason we disagreed about and not gotten along. But I just want to revisit an important text and talk about unity this, uh, this evening in the church. So when Haggai won, the people of God had become very careless in their relationship with him. The exiles had begun to, begun to return to Jerusalem after being freed from ba- Babylonian captivity. They'd begun to do some work in rebuilding the temple, but had quickly given up. And so they, they had given up on the temple and just begun attending to their own lives. And so they began to build their own houses, which they were content to live in and just sort of begin to accumulate for themselves, and yet had neglected God all the while. And so Haggai 1 and verse 3, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? That's the question the book opens with. And he just calls attention to this neglect. And in verse 5, God rebukes them through the prophet Haggai. Now, therefore, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And so the first step toward repentance for Israel is to consider Ask yourself, what are my priorities? What have I been putting first? And how has that been going? He asked them in verse 6, have you connected the dots from your skewed priorities to your frustrations in life? He says in verse 6, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag filled with holes. And then having considered their ways, God calls them to do it different from now on to bring repentance to completion, and to put first things first. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. I think the beginning of a new year is an ideal time for us to consider our ways. Everyone needs a time to stop and consider what is most important and whether I have been treating what is most important as most important in my life. Because it's so easy to sort of bump along from one one busy week to another without ever stopping to consider whether I've been valuing as important that which actually is important. And so we go along week after week, and then you pile up 52 of those, and we've just got a whole year of kind of a rat race, where we're bouncing around from school to work and errands and doctor's visits and trips, all of us, keep, all of it keeping us very occupied from week to week. But see, that's precisely Judah's problem in Haggai. They're so wrapped up in their own busyness that they hadn't stopped to consider their ways. And so to help us consider our ways at the beginning of this year, I want to pose 10 questions, 10 questions for the new year. Um, I think it's kind of a requirement if it's January 1st on a Sunday, you have to preach a New Year's sermon. But the changing of the calendar really does force us to reckon with the fact that time inexorably is marching on, whether we realized it or not, whether we had come to grips with that or not, it just was. It's easy to forget that from week to week, that time is going on, but when we switch from 2022 to 2023, we're forcefully reminded that a year has passed that we cannot relive. And we have spent that past year doing something. And we are either closer to our Creator or further from Him because of what we've done, and in 2023, we will spend our time doing something. And so before we start doing something this year, what I want to do is to pause and Haggai's words consider to look up to God, to get our bearings, to take a step away from the urgent for a moment and to ask what's truly important and whether I will treat what's important as most important. Ten questions, very briefly on many of them. Number one, what is one thing you could do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? I'll be turning to Psalm 100. We'll be there in a second, Psalm 100. It's kind of an uh, odd question. It's not uh, something we articulate exactly this way. So let me explain what I mean by your enjoyment of God. Um, By that, I don't mean making God our pal, playing games with God. I don't mean anything irreverent by that. What I mean is changing the way I think about God so that my relationship with him is one that is characterized by enjoyment. Enjoyment. Joy, fellowship, praise, thanksgiving. Instead of God being sort of the hard-driving boss, always breathing down my neck, waiting for me to slip up so he can get me, how about the father awaiting the return of the prodigal son? How about that image of God? What I'm saying is a, a different view of God, a more biblical view of God, increases our enjoyment of him, gives us more motivation to serve him. And so instead of seeing him as an oppressive taskmaster who's always telling me stuff to ruin my fun, and telling me all the stuff I'm not allowed to do? How about developing the maturity to see that his commands are for our good always? He's a God who tells us things because he's looking out for us. Sin is sin because it ruins our life. Righteousness is righteous because it brings blessing to our life. Or instead of seeing God as sort of an old bearded man who's not up on all the new stuff, and kind of out of touch in this antiquated thing, how about seeing him as the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth, the upholder of it to this moment? Awesome and powerful and all-knowing. It should be mind-blowing and captivating to think about how that God knows and cares about each of us. Instead of seeing God's Word as some rule book, how about seeing it as the revealed mind of God? Which means that Bible study is not some boring task. We are unveiling some of the deepest truths of the universe which we could not have known absent God's revelation. Mysteries of God's eternal purposes are revealed to us. That attitude and that outlook increases our enjoyment of God. And instead of seeing worship as some obligation of drudgery, imagine yourself standing before the throne room of God. Ask yourself, where would you rather be than there? This is Psalm 100, which portrays a view of God, which is getting at what I'm trying to say. Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, generations. That's the kind of God we serve. And if that's the kind of God we serve, the response is only fitting to sing and to praise and to give thanks. Start realizing the true nature of God, what he is actually like, and it will transform everything about your service and attitude toward him. What's one thing you could do to increase your enjoyment of God? Number two, what's the single most important thing you could do to improve the quality of your family life this year? This is Colossians chapter three, Colossians chapter three. Colossians three and verse eighteen. <clears throat> Colossians three and verse eighteen. Paul has household instructions for each member of the household. Colossians three, eighteen. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children unless they become discouraged. I heard someone make this observation once. I think it was a, it's a good one. They said, the person you marry will have more effect on your soul than any other person in the entire world. The person you marry will have more effect on your soul than any other person in the world. That's a very helpful reminder to, say, a single person considering marriage and shaping the kind of person they marry. But it's as relevant to married folks with maybe a slight alteration. And that is, I have more effect on my spouse's soul than anyone else in the world. I do. And so the question is, what effect am I having on their spiritual life, on the spiritual life of my family at this moment? And so going in the order that Paul goes in, wives, what's the single most important thing you you can do to cultivate a godly home, to be a godly wife? To respect your husband and do him good all the days of your life. To set an example of godliness and righteousness, even if my husband, especially if my husband, isn't serving the Lord as he should. Husbands, what's the single most important thing you can do to love your wife as Christ loved the church? To make selfless sacrifice like Jesus did for the good of his beloved. Do you need to serve as a better example? Do you need to perhaps give up something, give up hours. Give up a hobby to make more time for your family. Parents, what's the single most important thing you can do to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? To model what it is you would like to see in them. To perhaps put your foot down and stop sin in its tracks before it creeps in your home. To do as Deuteronomy instructs parents, teach them, teach God's word, teach God's statutes to your children. Talking of them when you When you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. What's the single most important thing you could do to improve the quality of your family life this year? Number three, what's one new way you could be a blessing to someone this year? This is Galatians 5, back a few pages. Galatians chapter 5, and this is verse 13. Galatians 5 and verse 13. Paul says, Galatians 5.13, For you are called the freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the freedom he references has a, a big context in the book of Galatians. What he's talking about is the freedom from the 613 ordinances of the law of Moses. That we are free from the strictures of the law of Moses. But what Paul is worried about as he has gone on about this and how we, for example, don't need to be circumcised in order to be in right standing with God. But Paul, what Paul is worried about is that we will take this freedom and sort of confuse it with license. That we will use this freedom as simply an opportunity to indulge the flesh. To say something like this You know, I don't have to keep the minute stipulations about cleanness anymore which means, of course, I can do whatever I want and I can wallow in uncleanness and I get to be in charge of my life now. Or, you know, I don't have to keep the kosher laws, which means I'm free to gorge myself on as much bacon as I want. That sort of thing with any of the laws of Moses. What Paul says is rather in seeing this freedom as an opportunity to indulge myself, which, by the way, just leads to a different kind of slavery, see yourself as free for something else, free to serve, the restrictor plate has been taken off, not so that you can sin and do what you want, but that you can be free to love and serve each other as a free will choice. Look for opportunities the rest of this year to fulfill the great commandment love your neighbor as yourself. And if you cannot find an opportunity to do that, all that means is you're not looking hard enough. Because there are people here to be loved, and there are people here to serve. There are people here who are sick, there are people here who are lonely. There are people here who wrestle with uncertainty. There are people here who are in need of a friend. There are people here who are struggling with sin and with guilt and with difficult things in their life. And I want you to notice this about this question. I am not asking us to go and think about how we can change the world. I'm asking us to find one new way to be, blessing, to be a blessing to one other person this year. Start there. Start small. What's one new way you could be a blessing to someone else this year? Number four, what's the single biggest time waster in your life? And what will you do about it? This is Ephesians 5 and verse 15. Ephesians 5 and verse 15. In Ephesians 5 and verse 15, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of time because the days are evil. You know, there are more ways than ever to, uh, to waste our time. This is what I suspect sometimes a lot of our technological innovation amounts to, new ways to waste our time. I think the biggest, the biggest way we do this sits in our pocket for 16 hours a day and then sits about two feet away from us on the nightstand for the next eight hours. It's the last thing we look at before bed. It's the first thing we look at when we wake up me at least, through which, you know, we talk about the immense possibilities, of course, but, but through it, we just sort of waste our time talking about, talking about our smartphones, our cell phones. It struck me the other day, um, a few months back, Carla actually lent me a book. She was telling me about, uh, the book is called Ten Ways Your Phone is Changing You, sort of warnings about technology and stuff. And it sort of sat there, and I haven't read it, and I haven't gotten to it, and I'm thinking, well. Maybe one of the things is, you know, it's changing me in that I I can't read a book someone lends me in a timely way and get it back to them, right? Is that a way my smartphone is changing me? But there are, of course, countless ways we could waste our time, ways that have been around a lot longer than cell phones. After all, Paul is warning first century people about this danger, and he urges them to make the best use of time. Step one is identify and do something about the enemies of redeeming the time. To be clear, I'm not asking us, I'm not saying we need to run ourselves ragged with productivity at every waking moment. I'm asking us to be conscious, first of all, of our time so we can make the best use of it. And that there are valuable ways to spend our time, which don't involve, say, immersing yourself in a textbook or working 12, 14-hour days. Having quality time with your family, with your spouse, that is a quality, redeeming way to use the time. I'm asking us to identify what's getting in the way of wisely using our time and being conscious about that, considering our ways. Number five, what's the most helpful new way you could strengthen this church? This is Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10 and verse 24, the Hebrew writer gives three instructions to Christians. Hebrews 10... In verse 24, three things he tells us, Hebrews 10, 24, <clears throat> and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. And so number one, he says, consider... How to stir one another up to love and good works. Here's that that consider word again from Haggai. Consider. When was the last time you just sort of sat in your chair and scratched your chin and considered this? Sat and thought, huh, how could I stir someone up to love and good works in a way I have not been doing? The Hebrew writer wants us to do that. The next thing he says in, in verse 25 is, do not neglect to meet together. Because neglecting to meet together is sort of a non-starter to everything good that's supposed to be happening here. So we sit and we consider, and maybe we come up with a good idea, but that's going to go nowhere if we're not together, if we don't see each other. And, and can I point out, the Hebrew writer says, this, this tends to be a habitual action. This is the habit of some. People who neglect to meet together tend to make a habit of it. But then he returns to the positive side at the end of verse 25, and to encourage one another. He says, until the, the Lord comes back, until that final day, we are all going to need all the help and encouragement we can get to stay faithful and to stay fruitful in serving the Lord. We will need each other until that final day. So keep considering and keep not neglecting and keep encouraging. The point is, this church needs your strength, it needs what you can bring to the table. This body needs what every joint in it can supply. We get that first and foremost, the sort of remedial version is you come, and we see each other, and we're ready to join together, and then we're ready to to lead, and we're ready to participate, and we're ready to study, and we're ready to worship, and then we're ready to cultivate relationships that are a little bit deeper than how's the weather, how was the game. We get that when encouraging words are spoken to someone who is struggling. We get that when a hand is reached out, when a bridge is built. We get that when some need is met. What's the most helpful new way you could strengthen this church? Number six, for whose salvation will you pray and work most fervently this year? Everyone, every last one of us knows lost people. We work with them, we go to school with them, we're neighbors with them, we're related to them. What I'm asking us to do simply is to think of someone, to begin praying for them, to begin looking for someone, just one person who I can perhaps share the gospel with, who I can pray for fervently, who I can invite to church, who I could ask to read the Bible with me in sort of a a low-pressure kind of way, to strike up a conversation with them. I'm willing to bet most of us already have someone in mind. What sowing and what watering could we do? And let me just give you one thought, one brief thought on, uh, on evangelism in general. Success in evangelism should not be defined by whether or not they get dunked in a baptistry. Success in evangelism should never be defined as whether or not they get dunked in a baptistry. We are successful when we successfully pray, and we successfully invite, and we successfully care, regardless of the outcome. The outcome is not all up to us. We're not salesmen being evaluated by numbers, and that's all that matters. Success, by God's definition, is defined by the fact that you sowed, by the fact that you watered. And whether or not growth occurs, there's a lot of things that go into that. I like what one man said about evangelism. He said evangelism is just one beggar telling another where he found bread. Number seven, what's one thing you could do to improve your prayer life this year? This is Luke 18. Luke 18 is one of my favorite stories Jesus tells about prayer. Luke 18 Luke 18 and verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus tells a story here, Book ended by, in the beginning, a lesson, and at the end, a challenge. So we begin in verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, <clears throat> quote, give me justice against my adversary.'" A while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. In other words, think about this. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So it's a story about two characters. There is an unrighteous judge, who we are told in his own words, doesn't care about God, doesn't care about other people, and doesn't care about justice, which seem like really bad qualities in a judge. I imagine to have any kind of sway over this, any kind of sway over this judge, you've got to have something going for you. You've got to have money. You've got to have power, you've got to have influence, there's got to be some quid pro quo, something for something, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. And So we have a judge like this, and into his courtroom comes a widow who's got none of the things necessary to sway a corrupt judge. All she has going for her is persistence and faith. And the lesson is clear. If a little old lady who's got nothing going for her except persistence and faith If she can manage to have her intercessions answered by this uncaring judge, how much more will God's children have their intercessions heard by an all-righteous and all-caring judge? Verse 1, Jesus says, here's what I'm after. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus is trying to show us two things about prayer. Number one, you should be persistent in it. And number two, you should be faithful in it. At the end of verse 8, the other bookend is The Challenge in which he poses this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I think it's the New American Standard has an extra word. Will he really find faith on the earth? In other words, when Jesus comes again, there may be plenty of people who sort of intellectually understand Luke 18. But the question is, will he actually find people with enough faith to pray like this woman does? Will he find people with as tenacious of prayer lives as this woman had? And what he's saying to us is, accept the challenge. Pray like this. And so what I think we need to do is to be a little little more concrete. It's very easy to, to, you know, on a New Year's Day say, you know, I want to do better. I want to do better about prayer. And I've said that, and then I don't know what do better means. What I want to encourage us to do is to be concrete about it. Maybe make a list. Make a list of people you need to pray for and then rotate through it. What I'm saying is schedule a time during the day when I pray to say I wake up and at 7 a.m. or at 8 a.m. I pray a prayer of thanksgiving and I make a list of things that I'm thankful for and I add to it and I edit it. And then at the end of the day at 8 p.m. I make a prayer of intercession in which I ask God to intervene in the lives, in the lives of people, to intervene in the circumstances of the world. Be concrete about your prayers. This is, a, this is an idea someone had given to before. Write down your prayers. Don't just say them, write them. Consider them, every word. Pray together. Make it a, a collective activity. Pray together with your spouse, with your children. What one thing could you do to improve your prayer life this year? Number eight. What habit would you most like to establish this year? Here are two quotes on habits. <clears throat> Number one. We first make our habits... And then our habits make us. We first make our habits, and then our habits make us. Second quote The second half of a man's life is made up of nothing but the habits he has accumulated during the first half. The second half of a man's life is nothing more than the habits he has accumulated in the first half. Our habits mold and shape us, for better or for worse. And when you begin a habit, you don't just choose the habit, you choose everything associated with that habit, you choose all the consequences that habit entails, all the outcomes, all the effects. And so if you choose to begin the habit of smoking, you also invite a lot of side effects of that habit, and our entire lives are affected by it. The same is true with a good habit. Our entire lives get shaped by that. We get everything good that comes with it. And so, for example, if you choose to begin a habit of daily Bible reading, what I'm saying is it's going to do more than just eat up 20 minutes of your day. You'll begin to learn and notice things in the Bible... You never noticed before. You'll begin to have a better sense, a better familiarity with God. You'll begin to get a feel for God. It will be more than just intellectual knowledge. You'll begin to understand, oh, here's how God works. Here's how God feels. Here's how God thinks about things. You do daily Bible reading, and you'll have a mirror that you're able to consult every day that tells you whether or not your life is conforming to God's image. Establish a habit that will serve you well The rest of your life now and the rest of life in eternity. Number nine, what one thing do you most regret about last year and what will you do about it this year? One of my favorite sayings about preaching is probably true of a lot of vocations, but it goes like this Some preachers have 20 years of experience, other preachers have one year of experience 20 times. You've heard something like that before? In other words, they never learn from their mistakes. They never stop and consider their ways. They just keep banging their heads against the wall and blaming everyone but themselves when it doesn't go well. We can all do the same thing. The question is, what mistakes did I make last year? What did I neglect that I wish I didn't? What didn't I handle in just the right way? What sin, what besetting sin keeps nipping at me that I keep around? We can't change the past, but we do not have to keep repeating it. And the Bible word for this is, of course, repentance. That's what we're really talking about. What one thing do you most regret and what will you do about it this year? Finally, number 10. What single thing that you plan to do this year will matter most in eternity? What I'm really going for in this sermon is is to ask these questions that just sort of breaks us out of the the week-to-week grind. I I want us to escape the urgent and, and think on the important to ask ourselves questions that prompt change that will benefit us in eternity, to make up your mind to do something because there are things we can do right now that will yield eternity-long benefits. And so it might be something as simple as deciding you'll just never miss a Bible study or worship assembly that you can't help. To say, I'm going to shape my schedule around God and not make God work around my schedule. It might be, as we talked about, to establish a, a more concrete system for personal prayer. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's when I'm going to pray. Here's what I'm going to pray. It might be to finally come clean and get get help with some sin that has long nipped at us and kept us hemmed in from from full-hearted discipleship. It might be to finally resolve to let go of some resentment I've been carrying around with me. Do something you'll be glad you did in eternity. Through Haggai, God told his people, consider your ways. Why did he say that? Well, because they hadn't been doing that. They'd been living, they'd been busy without considering. They'd been building their houses, living their lives, occupied with the business of life, and hadn't stopped to consider what direction they were going, and they had drifted from God as a result. And so what I'm trying to do this this morning is to help us consider our ways. Now, these are not magic questions. You know, we ask these questions, we put them on the board, and our lives get magically fixed. It doesn't work that way. The value of these questions is the fact that they bring an issue or a commitment into focus and they ask us to get real and to get practical. What am I going to do this year? Because I'm going to do something. And so I can do it in a considerate way and in a purposeful way, or I can just sort of keep on living by what's at the point of my nose at this moment. I'm asking us to break out of the urgent, to break out of the week-to-week business and to think about what is eternally important and to live in light of what is important. And so maybe as we're considering this morning, you realize that you, in a very real and immediate way, need to change. Maybe you need to come and to serve Jesus, to dedicate your life to him. Maybe you need to repent of some big besetting sin and to get help in prayers of these good people. Whatever your need, we encourage you now to come forward as we stand and sing.
1: our heavy land.